1: And I want to share with you, I want to share with you the most devastating words, right, in the last few years that a Raider fan has ever heard spoken. And it goes something like this, right, with the number one pick of the 2007 NFL draft, the Oakland Raiders select Jamarcus Russell. All right, Now, those of you who are football fans understand why that's so devastating. Here's a guy. We had the number one pick. We could choose whoever we wanted. And this guy was a stud at LSU as a junior, right? I mean, he, he goes and he wins the Sugar Bowl. He wins the Sugar Bowl MVP. He goes to the combine. His skills are off the charts. He's 6'6", 260 pounds, runs like the wind. He can throw it over half the length of a football field, right? I mean, he could throw the ball like 70 yards through the air. This guy was a stud and we choose him with the number one overall pick, and then he just stops working. There's rumors, and this I've read this, there's rumors that the coaches would actually give him blank play film so that they would send it home with him, and then when he'd come back, they'd say, okay, what did you learn from the play film? And he said, oh, it was a great play film. I learned so much. But they were blank tapes, right? They just wanted to see if he would go home and if he would study and learn the playbook before the game. Now... Why am I bringing this up? I'm bringing this up because there's a lot of you Christians in the room here this morning that don't know the playbook. You haven't taken seriously God's call on your life to learn the plays to get into the game. And you can't be trusted to get into the game until you learn the playbook. This guy had all of the skill set in the world, right? I mean if I were 260 pounds and I could run a 4340 and I could throw the ball 70 yards through the air, right? I mean I can't imagine having that kind of skill set, but he didn't have any work that ethic. He didn't apply himself to study the team's playbook. Jesus said this in John chapter 15. He said, "Greater love has no man than this than that he lay his life down for his friends." And he says this, "And you are my friend, if you do what my word calls you to do, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. Why? Because a friend knows what the ma- a servant doesn't know what the master's heart is, what the master's will is, but a friend knows. And then Jesus says this, all that I've heard from the father, I've now given away to you. Think about this just for a moment. God's heart and God's desire for you this morning is that you would understand what is being unfolded in our lives prophetically today. He doesn't want you to be taken off guard. He doesn't want you to be confused. He doesn't want you to be frightened or living your life in fear as you see things happening, see things unfolding in our culture and in our world today. He doesn't want you to be taken off guard when there's a recession that maybe leads into a depression and things get very difficult. He doesn't want you to be taken off guard where there's wars and rumors of wars that will be happening, when there's pestilence and famines and diseases and all of these things take place. He doesn't want you to be taken off guard. He says, are you reading the playbook? Because if you're uh, familiar with the plays, if you're familiar with the game plan, this isn't going to shock you. Are you with me? Jesus said this, again I want to reiterate this. You're no longer a servant. You're now a friend because a servant doesn't know what his master's doing. But the friend knows what is going on. And then he says this. I reiterate this. What I have heard from the Father, I'm now communicating to you. How do we receive that communication today? It's through the word of God. Right? You've no one to blame but yourself if you're living in fear and uncertainty because God has given us his word as the game plan. Are you with me? Okay, so what's happening here, what we're going to be reading about in 2 Thessalonians, if you have your Bibles, I need you to open those, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, what we're going to see here is we're going to see the Thessalonian believers, the church in Thessalonica, they're confused about some of the end times events that are unfolding. And there's all of these different opinions, and, and everyone has a different theory, and so all of these words are getting tossed around, and it's confusing the people, it's leaving them a little bit anxious, they have anxiety, worry, fear, and doubt, and so Paul is writing 2 Thessalonians to try to quell and to soothe those fears, and he says, Remember, we taught about this. I talked to you about this already. What I received from God, I gave to you. You should already know these things in advance. But just because you're in a place of fear and uncertainty and doubt, I'm going to reiterate these things. I'm going to explain these things to you again. And so that's what we're reading here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to read just a few verses together. Then we're going to take this and break this apart. So beginning in verse 1 with me. Paul says this, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind nor alarmed either by a spirit or by a spoken word or a letter seeming to come from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. Right? Can you hear his concern there? Look, some of you are being shaken in mind. Some of you are on, on shaky ground. Your faith is being shaken because you believe it when somebody has written to you or spoken to you or said that the day of the Lord has already come. And what I'm telling you is I don't want you to, to miss this. I don't want you to assume that that has happened because there's still things that will take place after that comes. The day of the Lord, the coming of our Lord Jesus has not happened yet because of all of these different proofs. That's what he's going to get into here today. So let's look at this. He says, now concerning, verse 1, concerning the coming of our Lord. If you're taking notes, I want you to write down first point here is that there was a great confusion over the day of the Lord. Now, just as Jesus came in his first time, in his first coming, he came in two parts. He came as a baby born in a manger, and he lived and walked and breathed as a man. He experienced cold and pain just as you and I would. So just in the same way that, that he grew up in a home just like you and I, that's what he submitted himself to his parents. And around the age of 30, that's when he began to truly minister, to begin his earthly ministry. But then after the crucifixion, after the burial, after the resurrection, he came, and, and this would be like part 1B, he came and he presented himself and he walked amongst the people in his resurrected form for some time until he ascended to heaven. His first coming came in two parts. The same way his first coming came in two parts, his second coming will also come in two parts, right? The first part is what Paul taught on in First Thessalonians. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. Go read First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through about 5, 3. And you'll see how Jesus taught about the, the rapture of the church, that we will be caught up and meet the Lord in the clouds of the air that he will gather the church together, that we will respond to a shout of an archangel, to a trumpet of God that will be gathered together and will meet the Lord in the clouds of the air. That's Part 2A, we will meet the Lord, the church, those who are in Christ will meet him in the clouds of the air. But there's part 2B that will happen at the end of the quote-unquote day of the Lord, Jacob's trouble, seven-year tribulation, where Jesus returns with the church to judge an unbelieving world. Are you with me? Okay, so look at this again. He says here, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him. He's talking again about the rapture. That word gathered together in the Greek, it's epi-synagogue, Okay, synagogue the, the root word is synagogue or a gathering or an assembling of people together. So Jesus is saying, I want you to understand the coming of our Lord. And when he gathers us together, that part 2a that rapture part, when he comes and he gathers his bride together, that that is going to happen before the things that you're concerned about happening will happen. The day of the Lord, the judgment, the, tri- the tribulation, the wrath of God being poured out. There will be a gathering that will take place first, and will be snatched up and taken into the clouds of the air. Now, it's interesting because that word gathering is used interchangeably sometimes for, for, in the Hebrew culture for a harvest, And Jesus often spoke of a harvest, and I think Pastor Walter referred to this last week in Matthew chapter 13, that at the end of the age, it's going to be like a harvest, right? There's going to be wheat and there's going to be tares. There's going to be wheat, which is the actual good produce of the land, but there will be weeds that are sown amongst the good wheat Right, And so in this parable that Jesus spoke, there was a landowner who sowed good seed in his field. And while he slept, the enemy, his enemy came in, a competitor who was trying to drive down prices or drive up his price, whatever it might be. He came in and he threw or sowed seeds of weeds or tares amongst his crop. And so eventually those began to grow. They began to sprout. And the people could understand. The harvesters looked out of the field and they said, oh, no, someone has come in and wickedly they've sown these weeds amongst the wheat. Should we go out and separate the two now? And the master of the vineyard says, no, don't do it now. Wait until it's time for the harvest. And then you'll really be able to tell what is wheat and what is a weed. And what you'll do is you'll gather the wheat and you'll take it into my barn. You'll gather it, you'll snatch it up, and you'll take it into my barn. But the weeds, you'll take together, you'll bundle up, and you'll burn them with everlasting judgment. Okay? There's a harvest, a gathering that is going to happen in 2A, part 2A. The rapture of the church, the gathering of the people, the angels will go. They're going to say, this one has the spirit of God in them. This one is marked by my spirit. This one will come into my presence. And those who are not marked with the spirit of God, those who do not have the Holy Spirit dwelling within them, they will be left here for seven years to experience judgment and given one last opportunity to confess Christ as Savior. I wonder this morning if that gathering were to happen right when this service is done. On your way to lunch, the gathering begins, the trumpet is sounded. That those, those who are marked by the Spirit of God, those who have the Spirit of God dwelling within them, would you be one that would be taken into the presence of God, or would you be taken into judgment? That responsibility and that burden is yours. In yours alone. So look at this again, chapter 2, verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken, not to be confused, not to be worried about what's happening in the world around you, nor be alarmed either by spirit, right? Some people will say that the spirit of God has revealed this or that to me. If you watch YouTube preachers, you've got to be very careful today. Because there are people who will put out these YouTube videos and they'll say, I had this dream or that dream or the Lord spoke this to me or spoke that to me. And, and there's no scriptural foundation for what they're claiming, but they're speaking it as thus saith the Lord, as though God had said it. Be very weary of those types of people... Right? Be careful that you're not just accepting their word as the word of God because it could be of the flesh, right? It could be of the flesh. This is what the scripture actually says in 1 John chapter 4. It says that we need to learn how to, it says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether or not they're from God for many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, do I believe that God can speak to you through a vision or a dream today? Absolutely he can. But do I also believe that the enemy wants to distract you or confuse you through people saying that that God has spoken this to them or revealed this in a dream? Absolutely. That's happening today as well. So don't be alarmed. Don't be alarmed by spirit. But then it also says, you see the second thing there, or by spoken word. Those people who stand at pulpits or who stand behind a video camera and are broadcasting their words on YouTube and saying, thus saith the Lord right? Now, God will never contradict his word. So the best thing that you can do when somebody gets up in front of you and said, God said this, or God wanted me to tell you this, or this is a word from the Lord, is you need to run that through the filter of the scriptures. Otherwise, there's a chance you could be led astray, right? Truth is truth and will never not be truth. Truth doesn't change tomorrow, you understand that? It doesn't matter what our culture says, truth is truth. That's what makes it truth, right? Okay, so here's the thing. When somebody stands up and says, thus saith God, or God gave me this word for you, or this is a word, this is, the the Lord has revealed to me that this is going to happen in the next year. You need to check it with scripture. God will never contradict his word. God takes this very seriously. This is what it says in Deuteronomy chapter five. It says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes the name in vain. Think about this for a moment. What God is saying, he's not talking about swearing. He's not talking about cursing with curse words. He's saying standing up and and representing your words as the words of God. He says, don't take God's name in vain like that. If you do that, The scripture says that God will not hold that person guiltless. He will require that at their hand. That's a huge responsibility for the preacher as well. Very rarely do I get up here and say, this is what the Lord says. Unless I'm referring to the scriptures, right? Very rarely will that happen. Right? I mean, the Lord has to really, like, shoot a lightning bolt down at me and just, like, this thing is, like, Jeremiah, like, if I don't share this word, then I'm in disobedience and I just can't keep this word in, right? Right? Be careful of those people who are constantly saying, this is what the Lord says. Okay, Now, he, he says very clearly. And then the last thing he follows up with, don't be alarmed by spirit or by spoken word or by a letter as though it seemed to be from us. That many Bible commentators believe that there was a letter that was circulating around the Thessalonican church, the church in Thessalonica, that was claiming to be at the hand of Paul saying that the day of the Lord had already come and that they had missed the rapture of the church and because of it, they were going through great tribulation and great trial and And many people believe this because of the persecution that they were experiencing Pastor Walter shared a little bit about that last week, the persecution was so intense that they were experiencing that they believed maybe we did miss it, maybe our hearts weren't right maybe we missed out on what God had for us and so Paul is saying, listen, you haven't missed anything, remember I taught you this when I was there and don't be fooled if some says the spirit of God is revealing this or thus saith the Lord or even if a fake letter is being circulated, I already taught you what truth is and it hasn't changed. All right. Anyone in here find a, a little bit of comfort in the fact that God's word doesn't change? You know what? There, there are things when, when in, you go to school right now or, or those of you who are in school, things are being taught way different than when I was in school. Right? And even the way that you have to do your math work and all of this common core stuff, and I would probably flunk like third grade, right? Right now, because I couldn't show my work. I couldn't do it. God's word doesn't change like that. Once you know it, once it's drilled down into your heart, you've got it, right? That's a blessing for all of us. So so he says, don't be confused by this. So that's your first point. There was a confusion going around. But secondly, what I want you to see is that there are conditions that Paul is gonna say will happen will happen before the day of the Lord. This is different than the coming of Jesus. The coming of Jesus is 2A, the rapture of the church, when we meet the Lord in the clouds of the air. The coming of the Lord or the day of the Lord will be when Jesus comes at the end to judge the world at the end of those seven years. And actually, that whole seven-year period sometimes is referred to as the day of the Lord. So let's look at what Paul says here, beginning now in verse 3. He says, Let no one deceive you or trick you or lead you astray, in right? any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Okay, so Paul says, listen, I want to be clear with you. Right, there are certain conditions that have to happen before the day of the Lord and those have not happened yet okay he begins here and the first thing that he's going to talk about again if you're taking notes is a departure look at what it says here verse 3 don't be misled don't be deceived don't be tricked as though the day of the lord has come because that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first now there is some controversy in scholarship or in, in scholarly circles about this word Rebellion, what we read here in this text. And there are two main schools of thought. And the first school of thought is that this word rebellion speaks of, of a wandering away from the truth. In some of your versions, it might, be, it might say falling away. Some of them it might say apostasy, and the word actually in the Greek is apostasia. The word rebellion is apostasia in the Greek. And so many Bible scholars believe that this is referring to in the end of days, at the end of time, that the church by and large will wander or stray from the truth and walk away from Christ. Are you with me? Okay, that's the first school of thought. Now, this is what's interesting about this particular school of thought. That word apostasia in the Greek, and we use the word apostasy in English, has really truly come to mean a wandering away or falling away from truth, following after a lie. The Bible clearly teaches that in the end times, there will be a falling away or a wandering away from truth. This is how evident it is throughout the scriptures. Jesus taught about a falling away or a wandering of truth in the last days. It says this in Matthew chapter 24. And then many will fall away. There's that word. And betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many shall grow cold. So Jesus taught about apostasy in the last days. Look at this next one, Paul. Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 4, he says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, in the end days, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. And he goes on and he talks about they'll heap up teachers that will tickle their ears and, and preach what they want to hear. Right? And so Paul says in the end days there's going to be a departing of people that are going to follow after lies that won't follow after truth. Look at Peter. Peter says this, 2 Peter chapter 3. He says, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of the coming? Jesus isn't going to return, right? Just live your life the way you live your life. Things have been going on the same way from the beginning of time. And this is just another cycle in time. In the last days, there will be a departure from truth. Jesus himself said in Luke chapter 18. He says, "When I come to the earth, when I return for a second time, will I even find any faith left on the earth?" The Bible clearly teaches that there will be a departure from truth in the end days. But the second view of this word, which I agree with and which Pastor Walter agrees with, wouldn't say that this is a departure from truth in this particular text. Does the Bible say there will be a departing of truth? Yes. But I don't believe that that is what this word is referring to in this text. Okay, let's read it again. Look at there, verse 3. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The rebellion, the word apostasia in the Greek, its literal translation is departure. We have come to interpret that as a departure from the truth, but it just means a departure. Like when we're going to depart from church today and we're going to go have lunch or we're going to go run our errands and do our things. It's a physical departure from one place to another. And so again, this text, if it's read that way, would say that the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, will not be revealed until the departure, the rapture of the church takes place first. Are you following me? Okay, this is important for us to understand because this word apostasia as a noun is used twice in the New Testament. Both times, it's used as a departure from the faith. But as a verb, the word is a in the Greek, that word is used 15 times in the New Testament. And 12 of those times, it refers to a physical departure from one place to another. Okay, so the vast majority of the times that this word in the Greek is used in the scripture, it's referring to a physical departure, not a spiritual departure or a wandering away from the truth. Does that make sense to you? So it's important that we understand what Paul is saying here. He's saying, listen... Those who are saying that you're in the period of wrath, that the Antichrist has come, that these things are taking place all around you, that you're in the middle of the tribulation, that you're experiencing the wrath of God, they don't understand that what God has taught and what I've taught you is that the departure must take place before those things happen. Why? Because the scripture says in 1 Thessalonians that you are not appointed to wrath as the church. Can I get an amen for that? Are you excited that you're not appointed to wrath, that God has not ordained you for wrath? Not only that, the scripture says this, that not only contrary to the fact that you're not ordained for wrath or that you're not purposed for wrath, you're absolutely purposed for salvation. Your purpose is that God would save you through that wrath, from that wrath. Okay, so now think with me just for a moment because there's a truth that we need to understand here when it comes to the study of the scriptures. And that is this, and if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. You have to allow context to determine meaning. Okay, so if this word can be used for two different directions, one for wandering away from truth, but one for a physical departure, you have to allow the context of the text that you're studying, the context has to determine the way you should understand that word. And to illustrate that, this is how I'm going to do it. If I take this and I say, I'm going to make a phone call on my Apple, right, You're going to say, that's ridiculous. You can't make a phone call on that apple, right? If I'm holding this, I say, I'm going to make a phone call on my apple. It makes sense. Context determines meaning of what I'm saying, what I mean when I use the word apple. Does that make sense? Now, if I take this and I say, look, this is the most delicious apple I've ever tried in my life, right? It's confusing. It doesn't make any sense because that's not the proper context for the word apple. If I we're talking about a vacation that I'm going on and I'm saying that I'm going to go to the big apple, you're not going to think that I'm going to go to a very large apple like this, right? That's not the context.